Holy Father, we thank you for the privilege we have always of gathering in your name. And there are so many places in our world, Lord, where gathering in your name is fraught with danger, where people are persecuted because they name you as Lord and call your Father our Father. And Father, we thank you for this gift we have of freedom and the ability to meet here without any threats, in total freedom, with the option and opportunity to, to study and learn and grow, to talk freely about who you are. This is such a rich blessing. We take it for granted because it's something we experience all the time, but God help us not to. And be with our brothers and sisters around the world who are struggling in so many ways through things like persecution. And bless them that, that they might stay strong in you, faithful in you, committed to you, that the church would flourish in the places where, uh, where they're threatened. Be with us this morning that the things we talk about will further our faith and deepen our commitments to you. We pray through Jesus. Amen. Part of the reason uh, those elements that were in my prayer in terms of persecution and all that are on my mind, I don't know if anybody else saw this, <clears throat> and, and I, I have to admit I, I actually question the truthfulness of this, but I saw a report this week that said that one of the places where the church is flourishing right now is in Iran, that there, there's an underground church in Iran that is just flourishing. Um, People are, like Muslims, are, are becoming Christians. And, of course, that puts them in a, in a real position of peril, uh, especially in that country, I think, as much as any country in the world. And it's just interesting to think that there could be that kind of movement of God's Spirit and Christ doing something in the country of Iran. I hope that that's the case. I, I saw this report. I, I, you know, I read it, and I thought, boy, is this true? I, I sure hope that it is. In, in the study of the Christian faith, there are some things that churches of Christ have been a bit lax about or even stood apart from. And what I mean is, is that we've been really good when it comes to things like studying early church history. And we've been really good at uh, New Testament studies. We've been good at Old Testament studies but much better at New Testament studies and much better even in what we would call the area of early Christian history or early Christian thought. Like when I went to ACU, um, and it's actually, it was different for Michael and different for Jonathan, but when I was there, uh, everybody was focused on uh, a certain niche of studies, which had mainly to do with early Christianity. And so we were experts in the area of early Christianity. And Churches of Christ became known for that particular study. In fact, um, Everett Ferguson, who was probably still around when Michael was there to some degrees, he's retired but still is teaching a lot. Like Everett has been honored over and over again by all kinds of societies and scholarly uh, bodies and things because of his, uh, his interest in and his expertise in the area of second century. In fact, he started a journal that was called Second Century, devoted to the study of Christianity in the second century. And so early Christianity has always been for us a real center of focus. 
And it's, it's neat that we've had those areas of expertise where people have done very well. There have been other areas where we haven't done well at all, or at least we haven't had any kind of real focus. So when I was at ACU, if you wanted to study what we call theology, biblical theology, systematic theology, whatever, there wasn't actually a theologian at, at Abilene Christian then. In fact, there wasn't a theologian in any of our schools. So when I say theologian, I mean a, a person who was studying the discipline of theology or systematic theology. Now, when Michael went, Michael uh, studied under a guy named Fred Aquino, and Jonathan also had a chance to study with Fred. And Fred had done the same degree that I did at Southern Methodist University, and then he went to ACU and started teaching systematic theology. So by the time Michael was in school, we had kind of come around and started thinking that the notion of studying theology was not such a bad thing. When I was in school we actually had to write a paper on why is it, and when I say we had to write a paper, there was one professor who was interested in this subject, even though it wasn't his area of expertise at all. But he thought it should be. He thought we should be doing some of this in our schools. And so he, he taught classes in this area, even though it wasn't his area of study at all. Like some of you know or have heard of Tom Albright. And Tom has actually been here, and he, he's, he's preached here a couple of different times. Tom's area of specialty was rhetoric, communications. And he studied ancient rhetoric and was interested in uh, the way that people like Aristotle formulated communications and things like that. But he knew that theology was something that needed to be done in churches of Christ, and so he did teach some of us some things about theology. So in a course I had from him, he, he had us write a paper on why is theology not really present in churches of Christ, which was quite interesting. And the reason that we didn't do much theology technically in our churches is because people like Alexander Campbell were really down on it. They thought that theologians were those who were distorting the faith and didn't want to do much theology. So we studied early Christianity and history. We studied the Bible, the New Testament, and Old Testament. But in terms of doing theology, and I'm going to define what I mean by that in just a moment here, we didn't do much of that. And we've, we haven't had traditionally a, a strong voice in theology at all. Then, uh, as I said, there were a few of us who started getting out of school and thinking, well, maybe, you know, largely because of people like Albright, thinking maybe this is an area that needs some attention. And so there are many of us now who've kind of specialized in that particular area. And then the people like Michael and Jonathan and others who've come later have had a chance now to do some actual study in theology and systematic theology, where even when I was in school, and it wasn't that long ago, um, we, we weren't even doing that, which is interesting. So what we're going to do in this class is we are going to define theology and then talk about why this is really important for us. And... and we're going to do a certain kind of theology. We're going to do biblical theology. And, and the biggest point here is trying to establish something of the core of our beliefs. Because I think that to establish the core for our belief system is extremely important for Christians. And as I go on here in just a moment, I th- I'm hoping that you'll see why that's the case. So what is theology? Well, you guys probably know uh, well, maybe you don't, but the word, you know the word logos, 
Okay? Does anybody here know the word logos, what that means? Rochelle? What's that? It doesn't really mean logic. No, but... And by the way, I can't hear a thing. So whatever she said, I didn't hear. I'm just going to make something up about what she said. Now, did you say it's logic? Yeah. Logos is not really logic. Okay? Logos is a Greek word. Miles, what were you going to say? Yeah, it is word. Okay, the word... The, the word logos actually means word. And that logos is part of all of those scientific studies like biology. The, the ology part is logos. So uh, biology, and what other ologies are there? Yeah, you know what I just heard? I heard... <laughs> anyway, you know what I mean. There are, there are all these, these words in science that end in ology, and the word logos is part of all of those because it, it, in, in that definition it means words about. Okay? Words about. And so in theology, the word theos, is the, word, the Greek word theos is the word for God. So the, word, the reason that we use the word theology, if you think, what, you know, where does that word even come from? It, it means God talk, words about God. That's really what it is. So theology is talk about God. But it's interesting because it's, when we start to define theology specifically, like obviously words about God could be anything. That's incredibly broad. This gets a little bit more narrow because we're talking now about human reflection on what God has done in revealing himself to humankind. So God reveals himself to humanity. God tells us who he is, namely in Scripture. And then we start reflecting on Scripture, reading the Bible, and thinking, okay, here's all this biblical information. What do we do with this? What what should be our priorities when we read this? I read the letter of Ephesians. And Ephesians is the, is the one book that actually does some of this where it says, here's some things that are right at the core. Here's what God wants to be right central. But there are a lot of places where we just have a letter communicating things from the Apostle Paul, say, or from James or whomever, things about God. And there's no system there. There's nothing that brings all the thoughts together in any kind of ordered way. So if I just asked you guys, if I said, what's the most important principle in Christianity? Somebody give me an example. If I said, what's the most important principle in Christianity, what would you say? Okay, Ron said love. Why would you say that, Ron? (laughs) Okay, I didn't hear it. Okay. You might be right. Okay? And Jesus, in fact, said, this is the greatest commandment. Okay? Now, you'd still have to ask the question, why should the greatest commandment become the core issue for our faith? Like, like there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible that says, whatever is the first and greatest commandment, that should be the very heart of things for you. We have to think about that a little bit. We have to decide that we think that the greatest commandment is maybe right at the core of things. Okay? Um, and, I, and I think love is a good, a good example of something that's at the core for sure. 
what we did was we took some biblical data, some biblical instruction, and said, okay, the Bible seems to, to say that this is really important, and so we're going to say that this is important too. And I think that's a good idea. But there's no place anywhere where Paul said, let me give you all of, and, and again, there are places where we get close to this, but there's no place where Paul ever says, let me give you the core elements of our faith. Let me tell you what we should have as the very center of everything that we believe. Let me tell you what the things are that should dominate everything else that we're talking about. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how there's forest and there's trees. And people always say, well, we've lost the forest for the trees, which means that we look so closely at all the trees that we, just, we miss the big picture. Well, there's no place that says, here is the forest. Don't lose this. this. These are the key elements that need to dominate everything else. And so we end up going to Scripture and having to ferret out and sort out what we think are the key core elements of our faith that become the dominating principles for everything else that we believe. And that's what I want to do in this class, is I want to talk about those core elements. And I would say that theology has an awful lot to do with identifying those core key elements of our faith and then allowing that core to dominate everything else that we are. Now, when I started a moment ago, I said churches of Christ didn't do this very well for a long time. We didn't talk much about the notion of theology. We didn't talk much about the idea of there being these core elements that were going to dominate everything else that we were thinking. And that creates a real problem for us. What, what kind of problem would there be if we didn't work very hard at identifying the core? What's that? Well, in some sense, that's a possibility. If, if there's no center that we're trying to tie everything to and keep it all connected back to that center, then it's very possible that we could be focusing on all kinds of things that are not central at all. And in fact, we could make those things that are not central, central. We could act as though they're central. We could act as though they're really important for our faith when maybe those are peripheral things. Well, that's, yeah, that's basically what I'm saying, Steve, yeah. Is that because we didn't go about from the beginning identifying for ourselves, a central biblical core. When we, when we went to do doctrinal study, for example, and to say, well, here are our priorities, we didn't have any kind of real core that allowed us to establish those priorities in a way that was, that was really fruitful for us. And instead, we tended to identify a lot of peripheral things as being more central, perhaps, than they should be, which caused us then to, well, it's one of the reasons that there was so much division within Churches of Christ as time went on, because we kept focusing on these peripheral things and, and saying that they were important, when really they weren't all that important. Steve? You said that the prime study was on second century early church. Yeah. And then as a non, I wasn't born in the Church of Christ, but seeing the Church of Christ, what the focus always seemed to me to be was 
how we do church as opposed to the, the bigger central things about love and loving neighbor of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, the question of how we do church was one of our core questions. But when you look in the Bible and you ask the question, like if you just read through the scriptures, you read through the New Testament and you ask the question, how big is the question, how do we do church? Or even, here's, here's one that I think is so fascinating. Um, you know, we, we really focused hard for a long time on the elements of worship. We felt like uh, if we were going to be the true church, if we're going to be the church that God wanted us to be, we had to focus on the elements of our worship. And so you guys, if you've been around Churches of Christ for a long time, you know that there were five acts of worship that we said came right from the New Testament. So we talked about those five acts of worship. They were singing, praying, preaching, giving, and the Lord's Supper. Thank you. So those five acts of worship became our five acts of worship. And we said, you know, this is biblically established, these five acts of worship. Well, actually, if you look in the New Testament, there's no, there's no summary of the five acts of worship anywhere. And it's pretty hard to even, you know, to limit that to five. That's, you know, that's kind of difficult to do. But here's the, here's the big point. Go to the New Testament and define all the specific things that are supposed to be in worship from the New Testament. Just ask the question, where's the list that Paul gives of the things that need to be in our worship? Yeah, yeah. Like, well, 10 o'clock on Sunday morning, that, but, but that's a good point that you're raising, Gary, is that sometimes we've confused those too and thought that all of worship was happening in here on a Sunday morning. But my point is, is that we made a major feature of our theology, our major feature of our faith, we made the identifying of the acts of worship that were supposed to happen at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And we said, you know, the New Testament has set these forth in a very concise, kind of clear, uh, limiting kind of way. And actually... It couldn't be further from the truth. Like if you want to look at the Old Testament and talk about worship practices in the Old Testament, that's different. It was very, very specific. All kinds of very specific things were listed that identified how worship was supposed to take place. It seems to me like the, the whole point of talking about worship in the New Testament is the antithesis to that. There's a huge, huge difference between the way worship is approached in the New Testament and the way that it was approached in the Old Testament so that in the New Testament, there is no list. That's the point. The Old Testament was filled with instructions and lists, commands about how worship was supposed to be conducted. In the New Testament, there's simply nothing like that. If you ask, what are we supposed to do in worship on Sunday mornings in the New Testament, the only way you can do that is by, you know, well, what we've done, looked at the history of it and tried to say, well, we'll pattern ourselves after them. But if God wanted to give us clear instructions about five acts of worship or something, he could have easily done so. Paul would have said, here are the things that you're supposed to do in worship. One, two, three, four, five. And he didn't. Clearly, that was not his point. 
That wasn't his concern. It wasn't God's concern when it comes to talking about worship. So is worship important? Well, I would say extremely so. That's, I would say that's a core idea, the notion of worshiping God. But is it a core idea to be able to set forth specific acts of worship that the New Testament church is supposed to emulate exactly in its contemporary worship and do it just like they did in, in, uh, in the first century? Well, it just doesn't seem to be very central to the New Testament teaching to do that. Paul just wasn't concerned about making sure that that was the case. And so there have to be some other things, I think, that are maybe central to our faith, far more central than whether or not we have the specific five acts of worship right when it comes to New Testament worship. June? Does it not say, though, in the New Testament that we are to come together once a week? So what are we supposed to do when we come together once a week? Yeah. Well, you know, the way you, the way you phrase that is exactly kind of the point, because here's what you said. You said, does it not say, though, in the New Testament that we're supposed to come together once a week? And I would say no. Like if, if I was to find that passage, there, there's no passage in the New Testament that says you are supposed to come together once a week. That's not there. Now what we have are examples of what the early church did. We know that they met together on the first day of the week and broke bread. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And that's, one of the, that's what we've done. We've said, okay, here's an example from the New Testament church. This tells us what we're supposed to do. Well, it's not a bad example. And I actually think there's something really positive and good about getting together on the first day of the week. We do know from the very beginning that the church was meeting on the Lord's day. It's what it became. If you look at uh, Revelation chapter 1, John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And we, we do know that the church was getting together on the first day of the week to break bread. That, that example is clearly there. But if, but if the central core idea of Christianity was that we were supposed to get together on the first day of the week, I would think that somewhere there would have been that instruction to actually do that. And so it, it, it's interesting how that example has become for us a command in terms of getting together on the first day of the week. And that's pretty much how we've done worship in Churches of Christ. We've said, okay, the early church did this, so that becomes for us a command. They broke bread on the first day of the week. We need to do that. Uh, they got together and set aside, uh, with this First Corinthians 16, they set aside on the first day of the week a portion of their income. Okay, so we're going to do that. Um, but all, all these things came out of examples. They didn't come from commands. And again, there's no place in the New Testament where all these these supposed core ideas about what we're supposed to be as a church in terms of worship actually are put together in some kind of summary form so that we can say this is clearly a priority for God. You just don't see that. So I think it's actually in clear contrast to the Old Testament, the New Testament perspective on worship, in that we just don't have all of those structured, commanded ways in which we're supposed to carry things out. Yeah, go ahead. You talked a lot about Paul told us this, Paul told us that. Uh-huh. Jesus told us a lot of things that I think are more central to who we should be as Christians as Paul. So shouldn't we focus more on what Jesus taught us while he was here? 
I mean, yes, God spoke through Paul. Yeah. But Jesus gave us a beautiful message that I think we should be more focused on than how we do church or what Paul said after. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get your point. And, and what you're saying is certainly along the lines of where I'm going too, is that, um, like, like if I ask the question, you know, what, what did Jesus have to say about our worship? Well, in terms of activities or specific things to be done, virtually nothing. It was, you know, it was the Lord's Supper that he passed on to us, but really there isn't much else there. So yeah, I, th- I think your point's well taken. Now, I, I, don't, I don't really like so much the idea of, well, let's prioritize Jesus over Paul or something like that. It seems to me like God has given us the New Testament as a package and that there is some sense in which Paul's inspired. His, his instruction is as authoritative for us, I think, as the teachings of Jesus. But, um, but I get the point that like, Jesus didn't talk about all these specific things in terms of worship or something. And so we need to focus on those priorities that were Jesus's. And I, and I, I appreciate that idea for sure. Michael? I mean, at the risk of maybe repeating something you've already said or jumping on something you're going to say, I think that's part of this conversation, which is to say, uh, to study theology is to ask what questions are we bringing to the text, right? It's to, yeah. to look at us at some level, because the question of how do you do church really can't be answered in the Gospels. But if that's the driving question, of course we're just going to spend a ton of time in Paul, right? And that's part of what I noticed. My, my profs at, at ACU had grown up in that earlier days of the Restoration Movement where that was the driving concern. So they're Pauline scholars for the most part. But there was a big move uh, in certainly my generation, and, and even from them, saying, look, we need to look at the Gospels as well. Yeah. So I, I think that's part of that question is what is, you know, if you're going to kind of try to pull this together into some sort of coherent whole, um, you have to ask the question about, you know, what is that center, which is what you brought up at the beginning, right? What, what's that piece that you kind of oriented around? Yeah. It's like when we were asking the church, or asking the question 50 years ago, what should we be doing? What everybody always did was just turn to the book of Acts. We studied Acts. You know, what, what was the early church like? And then we pattern ourselves after the book of Acts. Instead of just going to the Gospels and asking the question, what does Jesus want us to be? And that is an entirely different question to ask, what does Jesus want us to be as opposed to what was the church? Different those are different perspectives on things. And, and they both have incredible value. Uh, but it's a mistake for us to concentrate always on the historical question and, and not allow Jesus to have that kind of priority. Okay, I, got, I don't know what I said, but man, something. Okay, I'll, I'll go with Miles and then Ronnie and then David. Okay, Miles? Okay, uh, uh, two things. So uh, we are told that Jesus is not the sake of the of the saints. That's, very, that's, that's not a specific thing about how often... But there's a principle there. Uh-huh. And we are to be encouraging each other and edifying the church with the talents that we've been given, and we are parts of the body working together. Clearly, meeting together and spending time together is important. Mm-hmm. But you're right, it's, it's, not, it's not laid out as, as a bunch of rules that we must do with this often. The second point is that Jesus himself, um, you know, before he's crucified, Indicates that his message is not complete. He said, you know, he's saying there's there's more that I need to tell you. You're not ready for it right now, but I'm going to send 
you know, the, like the Holy Spirit comforts him to meet you and and all this other stuff, right? So, so he himself indicates that you can't just copy what Jesus said, he himself said, and say the message is complete because he himself said that there's more that you need to know. So we do have to look at the rest of the New Testament as well to get the complete picture and that comes straight from Jesus himself. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. If, if, there's, if there's a mistake that we've made in that, it's it has been uh, an overemphasis on Paul and an overemphasis on Acts as opposed to going back and looking at Jesus. But I agree with you. Jesus was certainly expecting these things to be authoritative for us and for there to be a lot of instruction that would come later that would be informative for the church. That's for sure. Okay. Was Ronnie next? Yeah. Uh, and I think this is an interesting question here down to um, our approach towards God and our role. And I just wanted to offer a couple of comments to consider. Um, one is all the New Testament letters are written by men, inspired by God. So it's, it's a little uncomfortable to hear the idea we're going to listen to certain books over other books when it's all inspired and to our knowledge, Jesus never wrote anything. So I think the point that you raised at the beginning of, the, of what was missing of the Church of Christ movement is the systematology or the systematic approach. And that's where, as, as, uh, as Michael said, uh, you know, AACP or ACB, uh, largely Pauline, uh, you know, I don't know to what extent that's, I'm sure that's probably the way it was. Um, but that's, that's what the Church of Christ did, was focus on these letters. But we have to remember, these letters written by Paul were written to certain kind of select letter written to the, to the Calvary Church of Christ in yeah. T20. Yeah. You know? And it's written for our circumstances. Paul, and, and we glean from that what we might do today. But we don't want to go to the point that we, we become like the Pharisees and we're going to, you know, uh, uh, you know, our mint and dill, we're going to tithe, but we're not going to tithe other things. And so the, the point that you raised at the beginning, we need to see this system in college, uh, from a systematic point of view, is where we get informed on this. And you can read the scriptures where it talks about in Hebrews who don't forsake the assembling are in where uh, uh, in Acts they met on the first day of the week. There's also interesting historical reasons why they met on the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't the Sabbath. These were Jews. So they couldn't meet on the Sabbath. They had to meet. So they met on the first day of the week. So I mean, those are interesting things that we sometimes quote follow the, the principle of patternism as churches of Christ. But we don't we don't want to go so far as to say well we're free from any pattern patterns, but we don't go so, want to go so far as we have therefore license for eating. Right. Yeah. And and yeah, and, and I would say that that the thing that's going to prevent that license for anything, or as Linda said, everything goes or whatever you said, I think it's the biblical core that has to keep us rooted at that place where we don't go flying off onto all kinds of things that are peripheral. And that's what I want to do with in the next weeks here, is talk about that biblical core as the center that becomes decisive for, really, for everything else that we do. Like the practical decisions that we make as a church, the doctrinal choices we make as a church, the priorities we place on our ministries, whatever. The, the way we go about ministry, 
All those things, I think, have to be governed by that central core. So that that core, that forest, becomes the template that allows us to see the trees the way we should see the trees. David? Actually, there are a couple of things. One of the things that I was going to say, you talked about things happening 50 or so years ago, and then uh, sort of moving past that. I, I grew up uh, long before you did, was members of the Churches of Christ long before that. That's true. And that's wonderful things So I think it's a little bit unfair to talk about uh, things back then not being good. I saw all kinds of things. But interestingly enough, a lot of the things that I saw that were good depended or happened because of the era in which we lived. And so there were Christians that got together and helped uh, people build their houses when they burned down. There were Christians that took folks in because they didn't have anywhere else to go. And they looked after them. Uh, there were Christians that got together and debated a little bit about whether uh, some kind of biblical doctrines were correct, and they sometimes worked them out if they still met together. So there were some wonderful things that happened, but I don't want to go back to believing some of the things that we insisted on in regard to, uh, such as the five acts of worship. I think there are places that we can look at the society that we live in today and look at then how we can better uh, carry out the message of Christ. And I think what we have sometimes done is fail to look at, at that aspect of it. The era, the society, the people that we live and associate with. Maybe that means we do things differently. Especially as you're talking about Christians in, in Iran uh, doing things differently. Christians in basically China and many, many Asian countries doing things differently because that's the best way they can do it. So let's look at the best way we can do things to meet people. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I thank you. I appreciate that. You know, one of the, you know, one of the things that I don't want to do at all is denigrate my, my heritage and my history. You know, I, um, just like the rest of you, I became a Christian because there was some good person in the churches of Christ who loved Jesus and who told me about Christ. And so there was an awful lot of good that went on. And, you know, the good ministries and the ways in which people have treated each other and loved each other and the church, the positive influence that it's been in society, I'm a, I'm a product of all of that. And I appreciate so much those who've gone before me. That doesn't mean that we can't uh, do some things better. Uh, and... And I do think that this idea of trying to identify biblical core, the central key theological elements, I think is really crucial for the, for the future of the church. Uh, if we're going to be all that Jesus wants us to be in our world today, ministering in our world the way David just described, I think that having this core nailed down as best we can. And, and I know that there, you know, 100 years from now, somebody might come along and say, well, you know, they didn't do this very well back when Kelly was a preacher at the Calgary Church of Christ. And Boy, he has some things wrong. That's, that's no doubt going to happen. Um, but, but for the time being, we have responsibility, I think, to try and identify those things that are right core central to our faith that will allow us to move forward in wonderful ways serving Jesus. 
There are some things that, are, that come out of this that are really positive. Like if I was to say, why would we do this? Well, first, it does help us sort, out through, sort through belief systems. People read the Bible, and as you know, they all come away with different perspectives. And like Ronnie was saying, um, like we haven't systematized things very well into a, into a system of thought for ourselves, or at least we haven't written it down, but it was, it's been there. Every group of Christians has their way of looking at the Bible and taking from the Bible what they think are the things that identify who they are. And so there's a, a Calvinistic way of looking at things. There's a Lutheran way of looking at things. There's a Catholic way of looking at things. Every group has its system. Well, what do we do with all of that? How, how, do, we, how do we look at that and say, well, should I be more Catholic? Or should I be more like Luther was and, and the Lutherans? Should I be more like the Calvinists? Um, you know, maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses, maybe they've got this right. Maybe the Mormons have this right. Uh, for that matter, maybe the Muslims have this right. Um, and maybe we don't. Um, I, last time I checked, I'm not uh, 100% guaranteed to be right all the time. And so if that's the case, then how do I know that there's not someone out there who's got things nailed down way better than I do? How do I sort this out? And then as an elder in the church, if you're an elder, or if I'm the preacher in the church, I'm going to stand up on many Sundays and tell you what I think the Bible says and what I think we should believe. How do I do that? How is it that I say, here's what our church should be believing as opposed to somebody else? And if I read a book on Christian theology that comes from a Calvinist and I say, well, you know, this, this fellow's convinced that um, everyone who comes to Christ, you know, the whole notion of once saved, always saved, they're always, you can't lose your salvation. Is, is that true? Is that right? Or the notion of being chosen in advance. Does God choose everyone in advance? And very specifically, and God says, this one's appointed to salvation, this one is not. Is that, so that there really isn't an opportunity for, for genuine free will. There's a lot of people who believe it's that way. Well, what do I do with that? With the fact that people really do think that. So we have, we have a need, I think, to sort out belief systems and ask ourselves, what do we believe and how does that fit with others? And what are we going to do about that? How, how are we going to make decisions about what we think is really right and what's wrong? We also just proactively need to learn Christian doctrine. Like, what is it that the church is supposed to teach? We have 12 things out on a plaque, out in the foyer, that are for us uh, what we call our non-negotiables. Well, who established those? And why do we decide those? And are those inviolable? Will, the, will those stand the test of time? Will they, is that plaque going to be there uh, you know, 50 years from now? Will it have been have changed at all? Um, so we have, to, we have to do that also. And then there's also the need, I think, in theology, just the notion of summar summarizing things in some kind of summary form so that we can have a shorthand notion of what it is that we believe. I think all of those things are important. So this notion of, of talking about core central ideas that dominate in theology, I think, is actually quite crucial, uh, even if we don't have an always in Churches of Christ recognize the value of that 
as much. Another thing to just recognize is that whether we like it or not, every Christian is actually a theologian. You can't really get out of it. Because ultimately, something is going to drive who you are. Ultimately, something is going to drive what you believe when it comes to your faith. The question is, do we know what we believe? Can we, can we summarize that? Can we say, here are the things that are, for me, central and core that identify my faith? If somebody from your work comes up to you and says, so I know you're a Christian, what do you believe? Would you say in response to that question, someone said, uh, you know, somebody went up to James at work and said, James, what do you believe? Like, I, you know, I understand you're a Christian. What do you believe? What, what would they think if James came back and said, well, I believe we're supposed to get together on the first day of the week and meet as a church? That would be a strange response. Would it not? Because you wouldn't say, well, that's, that's core to who James is, meeting on the first day of the week and breaking bread. Now, in, in some sense, that's important. But that's not near as important as asking the question, who is Jesus to James? And that's really what this class is wanting to do, is to say, okay, there's that question, who are we, what do we believe, and what's, the, what's an answer that gets more to the heart of things uh, than sometimes we've given? And so every one of us, in some ways, has to, to wrestle through this, I think, asking ourselves what are our priorities when it comes to belief. We also need to realize that this is always connected to life. Um, it, it seems sometimes like talking about theology is pretty impractical, but it's not. Um, every day you make moral decisions. What is the foundation and the grounds for the moral decisions that you make? Is it not who God is ultimately to you? And so when we identify those core ideas, like who is God and who is his son, who is the spirit, that becomes decisive really for every decision that you make all day long. From the moment you got out of bed, it begins to dominate who you are. And so it's very important, I think, that we nail down this core so that those practical moment-by-moment -moment decisions and choices that we make in life can be governed by that core. Okay, well, I had about three other slides to get to today that we didn't get to, so we will continue on in the future with this, and we'll dismiss class for now. Thanks, everybody.